Okay, wonderful. Well, ah, thank you so much for being here today and for taking time out of your schedule to have a conversation with us in this series, which is uh, designed to inform and inspire and um, share wisdom and knowledge with women about the power of female leadership here in um, you know, where we live. And before we get started uh, going into what we're going to talk about today, I would like to acknowledge that I am a settler and I am speaking to you today from my home, which is situated in the Mi'kma'ki, and that's the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. And the people of the Mi'kmaq nation have lived in this territory for millennia. Uh, and I acknowledge them as the past, present, and future caretakers of this land. And I'm just learning to give land acknowledgements. This is uh, something that's very new for me. And only really within this year have I been doing this and, and practicing this and fumbling with it many times uh, in that. But the reason I'm doing this and the reason I'm sharing this today and for anybody else who might be listening is because I am committed to a lifelong journey of learning. And part of that really is about me understanding um, history and understanding truth and really working towards reconciliation and equity, not just for the conversation that I'm having with women, but for all people. And so for anybody who's listening, I would really like to invite them uh, in joining this atmosphere of understanding, this atmosphere of dignity and an atmosphere of respect towards reconciliation. And so, with that, I would like to officially welcome our guest speaker today. And uh, we have with us Patricia Bernard. And I mean, do you prefer Patricia or Trish? It doesn't matter. Um, just I've been called both. I just not really a Patty because I find Patty to be more of a boy's name, but yeah, sure, yeah, she's fine. Okay, okay. It's always interesting to see, you know, how do we uh, get introduced and making sure that we're getting called the name that we prefer to be called. So, um, so you have so much to share. I mean, I have learned about your story, and uh, I, I'm not going to give away everything. I believe that that's what you're here to do. But um, in a short summary, what I know to be true is that you are a Wallastoki woman. You're a grandmother. You're a lawyer. You're a chief as well of the Madawaska Maliseet First Nation, which is in Northern New Brunswick. And we talked about your commitment, your tenacity, your resolve for settling a 250 year old land claim dispute, which I'm sure you're gonna be talking a little bit about that today. And not only was that important for you personally, but also for the benefit of your community overall. And it's taken a long time, I believe over 25 years of your time and commitment to getting that goal, that outcome realized. Um, but this is only one piece of your story. You've got a lot more to share and to tell us. And so I believe that's why you're here today is to share that story with us. And so I just wanna thank you again for taking your time out and being here with all of us today. You're very welcome, Harriet, and, and I want to thank you for that uh, land acknowledgement. It, it really does mean a lot to the Indigenous people of this land that we have allies to, to support us in our, um, in our claims to Aboriginal title and, and our existence here was not done, was not uh, 
our continued existence here was not as a result of any conquest or anything of that nature. So it's the land acknowledgements mean a lot, um, not only to our people, but to the relationship that we're going to have with the, um, you know, the non-Indigenous population and living together because we're all here together. Mm -hmm. And the acknowledgement really does a lot. So I'm coming from the traditional territory of the willis which is it, which runs from St. Lawrence all the way down to the Bay of Fundy uh, along the Wollaston River and its tributaries. So uh, again, thank you for that uh, acknowledgement. That's uh, much appreciated. Um, very glad to be here uh, and, and discuss a little bit about uh, the land claim and a little bit about myself um, and my uh, what's led up to me being a leader uh, in the community and, and, and being a woman leader in the challenges that I've had to face uh, along the way. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, historically, uh, women in our culture have always been leaders and, uh, you know, we've had a matriarchal societies and, and, you know, when the Europeans arrived, a lot of the time, uh, you know, the division of labor that was allotted to both men and women were given a, you know, a priority. Uh, if you were hunting and fishing or if you were staying back at camp. Uh, that doesn't mean one was more important than the other. And so th this is more of a European sort of prejudice, I think, that came over when, uh, when the Europeans arrived. So, so the whole idea of women leadership was really kind of foreign uh, to them, and, and they didn't quite understand it. But they said, hey, you know, the men are out hunting and, and, and fishing, the women are gathering and, and taking care of the camp. So that, yeah, they put a, a weight on those particular jobs as to one to being more important than the other when when that mindset shouldn't have ever been been put down as a you know as a way to, to to prioritize men over women so to speak and and you know as early as you know in the 1700s the jesuit priests priests when they first came over to try and do a lot of the conversion they noted that they noted the important position and even the superiority that the women held within the communities, particularly like when it came to things such as, um, you know, military affairs, lands, uh, uh, harvests, councils, peace and war, marriage, and even like the succession of the family. So you, you always, the, the line, the, um, uh, the succession was matri matrilineal. So mm -hmm. that was, you know, the Jesuits priests, this was not something that that they would normally see. So, so yeah, so that's really where a lot of the, the shocking comes from. So there's, there's historical documents that, that demonstrate that, but mm -hmm. it all got codified as time went on through the colonial governments. And, and, uh, and then of course, culminating in the Indian Act and the Indian Act, after confederation really sort of solidified the unimportance of women and almost as women as property, right? Because um, as you know, prior to 1985, if you were an indigenous woman and you married a non-indigenous man, well, you were no longer considered indigenous. And if you were a non-indigenous woman and you married an indigenous man, well, lo and behold, you took on the um, the culture of your of your husband. So we had a lot of non-indigenous women who came into the to our communities and um, and were considered, according to the government, status Indians. 
um, which is the situation, I guess, with with um, with my mother, because my mother is a non-Indigenous Italian woman, and uh, um, my dad actually, uh, when he was around 17, 18, he he uh, faced quite a bit of prejudice and racism, and couldn't find employment here. So, like a lot of uh, our people, we headed down into the states. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, New York, Massachusetts, where, where they found work. So my dad went to Massachusetts and met my mother uh, and then uh, proceeded to have seven children. Uh, and I'm the youngest of seven. And when I was three, uh, my dad decided to come back to the reserve in Madawaska and so brought the whole family back. But when he married my mother, uh, he was considered a status Indian. So my mother, a pure-blooded Italian woman became a status Indian. And so we all moved back to the reserve. So I grew up here. Um, and, uh, you know, my mother actually became chief of the community in 1985, which is a really interesting story because she's like the, the, the daughter of immigrants from Italy, comes over and marries an Indigenous man to ends up, you know, giving birth to seven Indigenous children comes up to the community and becomes the chief. And then, uh, so her, her leadership role sort of really uh, inspired um, not only myself, but I think my whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, my sister uh, also went into politics, my older sister, and she became chief uh, in um, 2003. And she was chief for 10 years. And uh, she was instrumental in, in you know, getting the uh, success of this community um, economic development wise uh, up and going. Um, and so she, she moved over more to economic development and then uh, you know, she had paved the way for me to become in as chief in 2013. Yeah, 2013. Mm-hmm. And so I've been chief ever since then. So I'm coming on to my 10th year as well. Um, However, prior to that, I was a counselor um, in 2007. So my sister was chief and I was a counselor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, I mean, our community um, has always had strong women leaderships and our nation as well. Um, but um, uh, I was the first uh, Willisquay woman to actually graduate from law school. Um, the first Willisquay man was uh, Graydon Nicholas. Um, and so I was quite proud of that, that it was a very difficult challenge for me to be in law school, especially learning colonial law mm-hmm. and how it came to be and, and, and property law and how the crown owns all the land. And, and so it's really, it was, it's quite a challenge for me to, 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 to swallow that, knowing the history that I had taken in my, in my undergrad which uh, I had, I have a Bachelor of Education and I specialized in history. So I, um, you know, going into law school was quite a challenge, but I, I pushed through it and I didn't do too, too badly, uh, except I actually had a hard time finding an articling position and ended up working for the federal government after, after law school. But um, when, after law school, I worked for the specific land claims department in Ottawa, worked there for um, a few years, and then I worked in Amherst uh, for a year on a secondment in states registration and governance. 
And it was at that time, my sister had been chief for a few years and she said, you know, Trish, you should come and work for the community and you know, we, should, we, we could use you here. And I thought, sure, you know, why not? Um, and it was always something I wanted to do is give back to the community. So I started to work for my community in 2006, but then I ran for council in 2007. And when I became council, my sister was chief, I was counselor, and there was another woman counselor. So we were an all women uh, council, chief and council. And we have to this day, since 2007, been uh, all women council. So the success that we've seen throughout these past two decades really um, is a result, I think, of, of our um, ability to multitask and be tenacious and you know, we, we, we had to go over quite a few hurdles to get to the successes where we are. Um, for example, like where our economic development area is located is right off the Trans-Canada Highway. And uh, when the Trans-Canada Highway went through our community, they put an overpass um, because it divided the land completely in two. And they put an overpass for there. And it was actually quite a bit of a joke in the community, in the neighboring, because our reserve is completely surrounded by the city of Edmonston. And so they were calling it the, uh, you know, the Indians hazelnut bridge. So they could cross the bridge to get hazelnuts on the other side, um, because we had our residential side. And then it was just more sort of uh, green space on the other side. But we knew that the high, that highway area was really a, a good place to uh, build some economic development to help our community. So we needed to have uh, on and off ramps because we had, we had an overpass with no on and off ramps. So uh, we approached the province. Of course, they didn't want to do it because they didn't feel, well, they didn't feel it was necessary. What's the purpose, you know, just to, and we, we, we sold them on the fact that we, you know, we want to have a commercial development here. And they were just like, no, they can take the other exit, the exit previous or the exit after, but, but that just, you know, in business that just doesn't work. So uh, my sister was chief at the time and I was a counselor and we pushed. So what we had to do was really take things that had happened to us and kind of use it against them. So one of the things that the province did in error was when they built the local city high school, they didn't, do the right survey. So they built half the high school on reserve land. So we were uh, threatening. We said, look, <laughs> if you don't build the ramps, we're just going to close the high school. We, you know, it's sad because you have to, you have to make this negative action to try and get the positive things that outcomes. So we basically said, look, if you don't agree to this, we're shutting down the high school. Of course, the city, the people, the parents in the city were really upset at this threat that we made. Um, and I won't forget it because there's a photo, I think, of the, my sister, Chief Joanna, myself, and the counselor, Brenda. And we're, we're looking really pretty, like some pretty badass women pointing at a map saying we're going to shut down the school. And, but it worked. Mm -hmm. um, they came back and they were like, look, surrender the school property. And we'll give you another piece of property and we'll build the ramp. So we made a deal. We made a deal around an error that the province made. And it ended up being to our benefit. Um, so we did surrender a chunk of land where the school is. They gave us a chunk of land and they built our on and off ramps. And that was 
that was quite um, um, an achievement because we were three women here uh, faced against a huge caucus of, of uh, provincial MLAs, men who just didn't really like what we were doing. But, you know, we didn't give up. And we basically were, were going to follow through with the words that we said. And they knew that because they knew we were going to do what we said we were going to do. And that's the key, right? So, um, yeah, so that, that was a big, a big ordeal. And, um, and, and that led to the, the, the beginning of the successes of our Grey Rock Power Center, which is right off the highway. And so right now we have like a, there's a, a huge truck stop, a car dealership, a casino, a hotel, a giant tiger, Dollarama, a little mini mall, a food court. So there's a lot, and there's a lot of more potential growth that can go there. And that really is um, pretty instrumental in our success. Um, so yeah, um, back to you know the, the the idea that this was in our culture. Um, you know, I want to use the example not just not just the Wollastogwe Nation and in, in the Mi'kmaq community as well as Mohawk and and and, and other communities as you move west. Uh, like take for example Sandra Lovelace. So when I was talking to you a little earlier about how a woman actually lost her status, her Indian status, if she married uh, a non-Indigenous man. A woman from, uh, who's now Senator uh, Sandra Lovelace uh, from Tobik, she saw this as, this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't fair mm -hmm. um, because I can't live in my community and I can't be with my family. I'm being ousted. So she, she took this to court and she took it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And then the Supreme Court of Canada sadly upheld the Indian Act and said, no, this is kind of the way it is. This is, it's outlined in the Indian Act. So she went to the United Nations. And of course, even though they don't really have any authority, they shamed Canada. Like, how can you treat women this way with a slap on the hand? And then that, that sort of started the ball rolling for legislative change. Mm -hmm. So in 1985, the Indian Act changed because of that and because of her and her fight and her tenacity, which is admirable, I think. Um, and, you know, she's just one example of, a, of many women who, who, who battle for, the, what's, for what is right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's quite, um, you know, it's quite inspirational. Very significant and very inspirational. Yeah. So um, so aside, you know, aside from the the, the huge economic um, development growth in our community, we as women uh, and uh, afterwards have um, have a, a few other successes under our belt. Like, and, and the two big ones are we have two land claims. One of the things is before our economic development uh, project succeeded, we had finalized uh, a small land claim. So there was a, uh, what happened was the New Brunswick Rail Railway had put a railway through our community and they so-called thought they expropriated the land. And when they, when the company went down under, they, they sold it to CPR and then CPR no longer needed that railway, but they figured they owned the land. And so they ended up leasing it to the local pulp mill and they had put a um, effluent pipeline through our reserve. Mm -hmm. 
And that pipeline was about eight feet tall, full of creosotes, and, and it went, it cut through our reserve again, like the highway, but they had left one area where we could cross. And I remember as a child going there and I could still smell the creosote, but I used to ride my horses up and down that pipeline. That was, the funny thing was, it was buried underground until it got to the reserve. And then it was above ground until the end of the reserve and then went back underground. Kidding me. No, no, that's exactly the way it was. And, and occasionally there would be like a, there was a, a shoot for like a, a vent or whatever. And it, I remember riding my horse by there a few times and that that chute would just flow out effluent and it would scare the crap out of my horse. So I remember always walking by that area being um, a little bit cautious of not getting jolted off. But mm-hmm. but um, anyways, back in the 70s, uh, they uh, they they brought they brought it to court, but but didn't really succeed in um, in, in getting the land back. Uh, but while I was in university, I had helped, um, we submitted a claim, but then the case law changed the case, the case law across Canada changed. So in other words, if you needed to expropriate land on reserve, you had to take the least interest possible. So you couldn't take it in ownership. So if you were no longer done with it, you'd have to give it back, but they didn't do that. They just kept it and leased it out, which didn't make any sense. If you didn't need it, give it back. So where all the other properties were quit claimed and they all got their property back except on reserve. Mm. So this was another claim. It was a smaller land claim. It involved about seven acres of land. Um, but uh, I was involved in that claim in the submission of that claim. And, but we did end up winning that claim. Um, my sister negotiated it and, and in record time was managed to get $5 million uh, from, from that particular settlement, which was instrumental in starting our economic development because you know it takes investment to 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 succeed and and we needed infrastructure and and so that was the beginning and that was in 2008 mm-hmm. so that was a huge success for us uh as well um and, and of course the uh the other big land claim, which I can talk about now, I guess would be, uh, is something that I had been involved in um, since I was an undergrad. And while I was doing my education degree, as I told you, I, I, I majored in history and I came across a lot of documents. This was really interesting because I spent a lot of time in the archives and I remember like, I remember getting car sick because I was going through microfiche reels and the, the movement uh, really kind of threw me off a lot of times but it was extremely interesting because I was actually learning not only about my community but about myself because I mean um, some of the the documents involved my fourth great grandfather which really was super interesting and and that caused me to write a paper. I did an independent paper on um, my fourth great grandfather and his name was Louis Bernard. And he, um, the paper that I wrote was basically to say that the provincial governments or the colonial governments of the time, they favored farmers, they favored those natives who assimilated. Mm-hmm. So if you were, I mean, our people traditionally were migratory we moved up and down the Woolastook, uh, you know, for the seasons, for the food, 
um, and, and, and we moved in clans. And so when the colonial government came, this just didn't really match with their whole state of living. So they, they would do as best they could. They created reserves and said, you guys live on these reserves and we'll provide you with seed so you can become farmers and, and basically tried to assimilate and change the, the, the way of life that, you know, that we traditionally had lived for millennia. So um, my great, my fourth great grandfather, he was, he, he did practice uh, agriculture and he was a good farmer and he was a good citizen, but he did, you know, there were times and if you looked at, I looked at censuses and, and there were times when he wasn't there. So he was still practicing the traditional lifestyle, um, going away and hunting and fishing different spots. But for the most part, he stuck to uh, the reserve. And um, so I, I tried to just, my whole thesis basically was that provincial government favored assimilated Indians. And, and he, was, um, he was pretty much one of them, even though there's much evidence that he, he still practiced his traditional lifestyle as well. So that particular paper um, led me to, uh, when I went into law school, to think about the specific claim, the specific claims uh, policy, which is, if Canada had breached a um, lawful obligation, then you can submit a claim to to them. And it's a little bit strange because you know, Harry, say you and I have a disagreement or an argument, or I've done something wrong to you, and you think I've done something wrong to you, then I can tell you, you know what? Why don't you just submit a claim to me and I'll look at it. And I'll judge it. Mm. Doesn't really seem very fair, does it? And this is how the specific claims process actually works. So Canada, mm. um, they basically have a policy where Indigenous communities can submit a claim. Um, and this isn't a big comprehensive claim about traditional title. This is something that very specific to um, you know an area like a lawful obligation. If if they sold. Uh, resources that belong to a First Nation for less, or if they didn't get any compensation, or if they took land without a surrender. And so what I noted when I was doing my research was that the reserve that we are on, there wasn't any real originating document that said like, oh, here's an order in council that created this reserve, like other reserves were created. We were considered a de facto reserve, like a reserve that's always been there. And but I came across a map. Um, so the province of New Brunswick was created out of Nova Scotia in 1784. And what happened after New Brunswick became a province is they, they were like, okay, we need to do some surveying here. So they had hired um, surveyor general to go out and, and a bunch of deputies to go and, and survey particular lots for settlement. Well, the surveyor general in 1787, now this is three years after New Brunswick became a province and was told to go up to Madawaska because there were some French inhabitants here and they didn't want, this is after major wars and they didn't want the French to sort of rise up again and they wanted to keep the indigenous population and the French population complacent. So they said, go on up there to Madawaska where there's a, a, a big Acadian French uh, settlement and settle the land for them. But before you do that, make sure you settle the land for the indigenous people. So they came, they did that. And um, uh, at the time that they did this, my 
fourth great grandfather was 17 years old. So he was here when the surveyor general came and laid out about 4,000 acres of land. And I had this beautiful survey map. Um, and this map actually was nowhere to be found in New Brunswick. It's a New Brunswick surveyor general's map, but it was sent to the surveyor general in Quebec because they were disputing the boundary. But the copy that was for New Brunswick somehow lost because New Brunswick is notoriously bad for record keeping, but it, this ended up in the National Archives of Canada. So I, on this map, it shows the reserve boundaries at about 4,000 acres, but our current reserve is, only, is less than 1,000. So that led me to think, well, what, what happened? How did we go from 4,000? Could find nothing except for, because of the poor records, but they were granting out land to people um, without the proper lawful authority of the community. And so I saw, this is great. This is a specific land claim right here. So while I was in law school, submitted the claim to Canada. That's back in 1998. Well, Canada, they had a backlog. They, they were notoriously bad for settling claims. They sat on that claim for 11 years. Finally came back and said, yeah, well, we didn't do anything wrong because there's no reserve there. We have no um, originating documents. And I had you know, mentioned the 1787 map, survey map, but that was not an order in council. And anyway, so I thought, no, 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 this is not right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, at the time there was no specific claims tribunal up and operational. There was an Indian specific claims commission, which only had recommendation powers, but I had to jump through hoops, got my claim in there. They accepted it for an investigation, but then sent it back to me because they were um, dissolving Anyway, so then I had to go to the specific claims tribunal, was there for five years. And so at this time, I'm a lawyer um, working for the band. Uh, mm -hmm. I was able to litigate this claim um, in the tribunal, which was the most rewarding experience for me because, you know, as a lawyer, you someone comes to you, you with an issue and you learn it and then you, you argue, you, you, you find the facts, you learn the facts and then you um, make the arguments. Well, I had lived these facts. I was the one who discovered these facts. So all of the documents were like, they were ingrained and embedded in my head. So this was such an awesome um, claim to sort of litigate because you, I, I had the, the, these documents were in my head and I could bounce back with, uh, you know, um, with, facts that a normal lawyer would have taken a long time to sort of absorb all of that and actually memorize it. So, so it was, it was a five years of, first of all, they tried to get me off the claim. They said, oh, you submitted the claim. You can't, and you worked for specific land claims. So you know what our legal arguments are. So you're in a conflict. Well, I had asked a couple of lawyers. I said, well, should I be off this claim? They said, well, possibly, you know, you, you did have access to their legal opinions. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, no, I'm not getting off this claim. And so they set a motion to try and pull me off. And I, we went to um, a case management conference. And before the judge, I said, listen, I said, you know, I'm, I've been doing this claim and I kept the arm's length away from it while I worked there. So the judge went to the, uh, to the uh, Canada's lawyer and said, so you're telling me 
that you don't want Ms. Bernard to, to uh, argue this claim because she knows what your legal arguments are going to be. But when we go before the tribunal, you're going to have to reveal what those legal arguments are going to be. So it, he pretty much shamed them into there and, and they, so they backed off. Um, you know, then they tried to say, I couldn't use current case law or I couldn't uh, broaden the claim. If I found any new documents, couldn't use that. Um, but they lost at every point. And so after five years, we went through the hearings, which, which were, you know, three weeks, two and a half to three weeks in total. And the judge came back in our favor. And that was just, that was just a fantastic win. It really, really was. Um, but, but what had happened in that particular claim and, and where it sort of still, you know, pulls at my heart was going through how the land was taken away um, without consideration for the, the inhabitants who were living there at the time. And over a period of about 90 years, they just chipped away. But in 1861, my fourth great-grandfather, Louis Bernard, who I was speaking of, he was there and the Indian agent came to the reserve and he told them, um, you're gonna have to move your community and your family to Tobik. They wanted to put everybody in Tobik. Well, he was 90 years old at the time. So when they set up the boundaries for the reserve, he was 17, he had lived there all his life. And at 90 years old, they come and tell him he has to move. So in 1861, the age of 90, he traveled to Fredericton, most likely by canoe. He hired a magistrate and he made a, um, a plea to the government. And in, in his plea, it's, it's quite um, uh, emotional where he, he says, I've been a good citizen. I've, I can't believe you would, you would uproot me from the place where I was born. I've buried my parents here along the banks of the river. I've buried my grandparents here, my wives, my brothers and sisters, some of my children and my grandchildren, and you would move me from here. And I've been nothing but a loyal citizen. So it must have struck some uh, chord, hard chords because it was after that point that the reserve was no longer diminished. Wow. So, I mean, for uh, he ended up living to be 100 years old as well. And so and so that's quite amazing for, you know, 18. He, he died in 1871 um, to be 100 years old at that time. You know, you've got to be pretty strong. So, you know, I was always kind of proud of that. Um, and uh, and that's kind of really really made this a personal claim for me as well. And, and the fact that, you know, we were able to win this for the community, for the benefit of the community has been, um, you know, such a great honor for me. And, and, and I wanted to honor um, Louis Bernard. So our, you know, we put away quite a bit of money into a, a trust, um, a legacy trust. Uh, we put $50 million wow. into a legacy trust. Cause when we won the claim, we settled for 145 million and we gave some money out to the members at the time. We uh, put uh, 50 million in a legacy trust, which we call the Louis Bernard uh, legacy trust. So it, it's, it's an honor of his tenacity. Mm. And because of, you know, if it wasn't for him, we'd probably all be members of Tobik first nation. Um, and, and, you know, at, at his age to do what he did. So, so I feel that, that, that sort of blood flows through my veins as well. And, and I was 
happy to be a part of it, happy to continue his fight. Um, you know, and we're not over yet. I mean, we still have more land claims to go and more successes and battles. But uh, uh, right now there's a political one that goes on with this province. Uh, unfortunately, um, our premier in New Brunswick uh, seems to be somewhat intimidated by very um, strong-willed women. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a, I'm pretty sure I keep him up at night um, about how, you know, I mean, as he says, you know, we're going to take over the province and that's not our, that's not our, um, our goal. We have in, in 2020, the nation, not Madawaska, not my community, but the six communities that make up the Willis-Tigui mm -hmm. filed a, uh, an Aboriginal title claim, mm -hmm. which really, I think, keeps him up at night. But, uh, you know, all he has to do is sit down and talk to us, but uh, on an equal footing, which is something that that this particular New Brunswick government is just not good at doing at all. Mm. So, yeah, so that's, that's just a little a bit of my story. <laughs> of what you've been up to. I mean, yes. wow. So what, I mean, what drives you or what keeps you up at night? Um, well, the injustices and the things that need to be done. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of them are not big things. We have a lot of things on the go as a nation and as a community. For example, one of the things we're, we're doing as a nation is we're trying to, to reclaim the name of our river. Mm. Now, the St. John River is, is known as to us as the Woolastook. And the Woolastook means beautiful and bountiful river. And we are the Woolastook Way. So we are the people of this beautiful and bountiful river. Our whole identity and our whole culture is wrapped up in this particular landmark, this, this waterway, which is life-giving to us. And to, to take it and to have it just, its name just changed to St. John, um, you know, at the time they were doing that. They did keep a lot of traditional uh, Mi'kmaq and, and Willistaway names, but I'm not sure why they changed the name of the St. John River. Maybe Willistaway was too hard to say at the time. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But this is a small reconciliatory thing to do. Um, it's not, it's not going to be easy mm -hmm. because you, you, the river actually goes into the United States, uh, New Brunswick, and into Quebec. So, so there is a little bit of, of coordination that need, needs to happen, but it's not a big one. Mm -hmm. So these, these, this is a small thing, and I think this is a doable thing. So, you know, that's one thing that I'd like to see. We have our title claim. Recognition of our title is huge. Now, Aboriginal title is a land claim, and it's not the same as the specific land claim that I, I, that I settled in 2021. Uh, a, the Aboriginal title claim is a big comprehensive claim of recognition that we never, we were never conquered, we never gave up, we never ceded or surrendered our traditional lands. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? That means that there's an underlying Aboriginal title to our territory. Just like, um, you know, Harriet, you may have a piece of property uh, somewhere in Nova Scotia, you bought it, you get a fee simple or whatever. Mm -hmm. But just so you know that that fee simple is not ownership. Mm -hmm. The crown underlying has all, owns all land. Mm -hmm. 
So if the crown needs your property, they can come in and expropriate it. There's nothing you can say or do because there's a crown title to all the land in Canada, which is something you learn in law school and you're just like, what? Like, what, what happened? So what, what we are claiming is an Aboriginal title that, that the crown has um, not the first right to that particular property. And, and this has been going on since the 70s, right? So the Supreme Court of Canada in the 70s recognized that, yeah, wait a minute, there is such thing as an Aboriginal title. But it wasn't until 2014 that out in, in um, British Columbia that they actually recognized an actual portion of having Aboriginal title. Now we've signed treaties, which we call peace and friendship treaties. As you move out West, there are land session treaties which were surrenders of land. And those are usually called the, the numbered treaties or the land session treaties. Right. But our peace and friendship treaties did not cede any land. Um, and that's, that's the big thing. So this is a claim that I, you know, I know is gonna take another couple of decades to resolve mm -hmm. in the courts, because we're in the court system because the current government doesn't know how to negotiate. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to reconcile. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, and here's the thing, we are using the Canadian colonial court systems to fight our, our claims. Now we could just say, we know this to be the truth and that's it. But the Canadian system cannot recognize that because it's a house of cards. Mm -hmm. The minute they recognize that, the whole system falls down. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, we're using their system to recognize it, which is a little bit ironic. Yes, yeah. Uh, but but it's been working. It's the same as this specific claim we settled. It's been they set up the rules, and they failed at their own rules. Mm -hmm. So, so those are the things that keep me going. Yeah, I mean, I feel the fire inside of you, and it's inspiring. And one thing that really stood out to me is you said, I mean, amongst many things, but you said, you know people were favored who assimilated and it made me start to think about isn't that true in so many places even still today um so i'm curious of your thoughts on that specifically through the lens of gender and assimilation um what what are your reactions to that well you know you're absolutely right because um, there's a stereotypical view of women mm -hmm. um, to be sort of weaker, uh, more emotional, and and those those traits, which are you know not necessarily uh, bad traits, mm -hmm. they can be powerful traits. Yep. Um, it 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 makes success for women a little more difficult. Um, I've had to sit around tables with men who clearly through body language and certain terminology could see they felt superior to me um, as being a man versus a woman. Mm -hmm. But you see, it seems like we've had to go the extra mile. Like, would you have sat around this table with me and given me any time if I wasn't a lawyer or if I didn't, uh, you know, do, do something aggressive? 
Right. Um, and and when and when we talk about having the 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 us three women wanting to get ramps, highway mm-hmm. ramps, a simple thing that should have been done when the overpass was done, we had to come off as. Um, and I said this in an interview uh, to Atlantic Magazine once said that we were considered the three biatches. <laughs> and, and they actually put that as the title. If you look up um, the three biatches, they put, I, I, didn't, I didn't intend for them to do that, but we had to be really mean looking and mm-hmm. aggressive, which, which, you know, something that I, I find uh, sad. Yeah. Like you can't, you, you, you have to go beyond um, a normal aggression that a man would have to do to get what they have to do, that you have to be that much more as a woman. And it seems, it seems, I mean, I've seen it in other sort of places in politics and uh, any leadership role, the women's, ha- they have to go that extra mile yeah, and be extra educated or extra aggressive. All the other things. And, yeah. So much more of everything in order to just be treated as an equal at the table exactly. and have your voice so, heard. In a sense, it's you can see it, maybe not so much as assimilated, but um, I mean, and 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 this is when you go back to residential schools, mm-hmm. where uh, you know they really tried to take away any language and culture um, to assimilate you. We lost a lot. We lost a lot, and and that's been a sad thing. Mm-hmm. And we've lost a lot of our um, natural women leadership that actually, uh, you know, existed prior to that. And, and, you know, some people may or may not believe in um, DNA memory, but, uh, you know, you kind of, the blood flows there. Mm -hmm. Um, It flows through, you know, just because it was my um, fourth great grandfather who did this uh, doesn't necessarily mean that 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 same blood didn't flow through my grandmother's and would have happened likely been through his mother as well yeah. and, and down the line. So I, it's just, it's just too bad that that assimilation had that need to assimilate um, by the colonial government was its own way to, that they would own, that would be the only way they could succeed. Mm-hmm. Not sure well, if that makes too much sense. But. No, it makes tons of sense. And, you know, it's a control mechanism. And I see it in, I see it daily, different forms of assimilation. And, you know, women trying to decide what direction they want to go in. Do I want to assimilate and lower my risk and play it safe and comply and follow? you know, what we could, we could say a patriarchal model of what, you know, it means to be a successful woman in today's society, or do I want to stand out? And I think there's definitely fear and worry in standing out on what will happen to me. I mean, we see women getting labeled as biatches all the time when they use their voice and are trying to just have their voice heard. We get labeled pretty easily for being too, I mean, I've never seen man ever be labeled as too aggressive i've never seen that you know unless we're talking about something like you know really off the charts but we're you know in a meeting in a conversation i see these kinds of things in leadership conversations all the time so what would you say to women who are 
at that crossroads, you know, want see that something is not right, don't agree with the way that something is being done, see injustices, even in their communities or in their work environments, and are worried about standing out, you know, worried about uh, the backlash, the fallout, whatever you want to call it, what would you say to them? Never give up mm -hmm. and never give up. And if you know, deep down, that this is the right thing to do, to fight for it. You do what you got to do to get to get to where you need to be, the right thing, and as and 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 the tenacity. You need to be committed, and and believe believe in yourself. Believe in what you know to be the right thing to do, and it's a it's it can be it can be challenging because sometimes, and I've been questioned, you know, why are you doing this? Like, who are you doing this for? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to necessarily be doing it for anyone. Um, I do it for, I do it for myself, for my nation, for my family, my community, but it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do. And, and if you, without a doubt, know it, then just never give up. And that's what I would say to, to, to any woman uh, in, in the path that they want to take. If you want to become a doctor, you know, people will try it. Oh, you're so, so nice and caregiving. You should become a nurse. Mm -hmm. No, you shoot for the stars. Mm -hmm. you know, do what you have to do to, to, if you know, if that's what you want to do, then just do it. And maybe you want to be a nurse and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be more than that, then be more than that. Mm -hmm. um, anything, or if you know that something it needs to be done. Don't let anything stop you, especially um, your gender. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so, so powerful. And I'm oh, so inspired and fired up listening to you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, tenacity and grit and perseverance. It definitely feels like it's your story, but also has been handed down generationally, you know, is definitely a part of your story. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit of that with us. And we are here supporting you and the work that you're doing and wish you success with playing the long game by the sounds of it in, in fighting for what is just and what is equal. And we need powerful voices like yours and proud to be part of the Biatch's story today. <laughs> I can't believe that's a hilarious, hilarious title, but also sadly, really what ends up happening. So I'm going to go look for that photo now, now that you've shared that story with me, I need to see it for myself. Yeah, there's a, it's in a magazine that would have been a couple of years ago. And it's, I think it's Atlantic business magazine, mm -hmm. but, uh, but thank you so much for oh the opportunity gosh. to speak, Harriet. I really, I really had a, a good time talking with you today. Yeah, that's great. And uh, the last thing that uh, you're reminding me of, you know, when you were saying like, why people are asking me, why are you doing this? I heard a woman speak recently and she said, if not me, then who? And I think that that's just really important as we all think about, you know, what kind of life do we want to lead and what do we want to be known for and what's the impact that we want to make? Uh, there are choices, there are trade-offs, there are truths that need to be dealt with. And if not us, then who? So thank you so much for being here today. And I'm going to be keeping an eye on how things are going. And please thank you so much again for being here and taking your time out today. Thank you. Leland. Take care.